The Self-Aware Leader, Chapter 6, Seeing Your Pressures David Letterman revolutionized American late-night television in the 1980s and beyond, paving the way for other late-night hosts to perform comedy sketches, stunts, and interviews outside the studio. The silly exploits were a strange mix of interesting and lame. But each night, folks would tune in to see what Dave would do for his top ten lists, stupid pet or human tricks, or routine with one of his cast of characters. One of Letterman's earliest stunts included seeing what would happen if he put various items under an 80-ton press. Viewers would write in with ideas of what to crush, and he'd try the most outlandish ones. It was mesmerizing to watch what would happen. What would ooze out under the weight of the press? Whether it was a watermelon or an iPhone, under duress. Ask people in Christian ministry how they're doing, and you'll often get a wearied response, a comment about stress, or a grunt. Ministry has pressures, some of which are difficult to explain or identify. Consider this list and make a check by those you have experienced. I feel pressure to be consistent in how I treat people. I feel pressure to maintain a high quality of output. I feel pressure to be knowledgeable and well-read on all topics. I feel pressure to be well-organized yet instantaneously available for counseling. I feel pressure to not say or admit I am exhausted. I feel pressure from not having enough money personally or organizationally. I feel pressure to measure up to expectations of my family. I feel pressure to be confident in my beliefs even when I have questions. The articles, books, and conference speeches about the topic should tell you that you are not alone in feeling pressure. And you may argue that you thrive on pressure, that you are motivated by the deadlines. But here's what I know from watching others' lives and my own life. Unrelenting pressure can turn into stress. And stress relief, done poorly, can wreck relationships, ministries, and lives. Regardless of our response to pressure, none of us are immune to its consistent presence. It shows up at our limits and edges, the boundaries where we interact with others, define ourselves and our work, and where we defend values and philosophies. Pressure at our edges. Pressure occurs when a force encounters resistance, and that happens at an edge. The line between the 80-ton press and the watermelon are two surfaces or edges pressing against each other. The pressure of the press is greater than the pressure inside the watermelon, and the result is sloppy fruit salad. All of those pressures in the list come between our circumstances and our soul, between our expectations and our God-given competencies and calling, between ourselves and those around us, between our leadership and the people we are leading. We meet the world and minister to the world at the edges of our lives. There, we define our lives, our boundaries, and how we protect what's important to us. Pressure can push us to respond in ways we normally wouldn't. When the demands stack up on us, they can short-circuit healthy and strategic responses, thoughts, and actions. Pressure and stress create fear and anxiety regarding our boundaries, and self-productive or defensive responses squeeze out time for reflection, creativity, and spiritually healthy practices. We often say that the pressures put us on edge. One of the tools I use with young leaders is the popular DISC profile which can be found at terrylinhart.com slash disc, D-I-S-C. The tool gives me three results. One, the mask the person shows to the world. Two, how the person will likely respond under pressure. 
and three, the real self behind the exterior. Rarely are all three consistent. When working with others, I am most interested in viewing the second result. I want to know how they think, respond, and lead when the pressure increases and the going gets tough. Not in despair. Pressure is not new to God's people. Paul writes about it clearly in 2 Corinthians, a vulnerable letter he wrote to people he loved and was frustrated with. Paul says that when we accept a life of ministering God's reconciliation, we are also accepting a life full of pressure. We are afflicted, Paul says, or more accurately, we feel pressure in 2 Corinthians 4.8. But we are not crushed, according to familiar translations, but perhaps it would be clearer to say we are not squeezed into a corner with no way out. It's one thing to feel pressure. It's another to be in despair at its presence and power. We don't merely feel outside pressure. Sometimes it bubbles up from within. As Paul looked back on his ministry, he noted that he often felt perplexed, but was never in despair, verse 8. This could be translated, I feel lost, but not like I've lost out. Sometimes ministry presents situations where we don't know what to do, and we're in the dark as to what's ahead. Paul acknowledges this same feeling in his ministry. And we can take heart by his example, not being deterred in our faithfulness at our ambassadorial post. We have a role to play in our communities, a responsibility. And though it can be difficult, we are to preserve until the one who put us here moves us to our next post. Paul ups the ante for those who say they are all in to a life in ministry. Though Paul was persecuted, he was never abandoned or left for ruin. Though he was overtaken at times, he was never destroyed. Paul endured significant physical torture for his faith, and yet he recounts that he felt sustained and that the life of Jesus still could be seen in him. Though death was a constant possibility, Paul's faith and love compelled him in the face of ministry pressures as he focused on the example of Christ. Sometimes I find that my ministry focus has swiveled from the edges of my work to the center. Instead of spending my time and energy for the sake of the gospel and others, I have become too interested in seeking comfort and an easy schedule each week. And then Paul says, All of this suffering is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4.15 Paul endured seasons of pressure by focusing on Jesus and his supremacy in Paul's life. In moments of reflection on his life and ministry, he returned to the goal of knowing Christ more deeply, growing in Christ-likeness, and engaging in mission with Christ. His confidence was in Jesus to work in and through him even in the midst of pressure, suffering, and opposition. Again, the process of developing self-awareness is not so we have more confidence in ourselves, but so we can be more faithful and effective in the work that Christ has called us to do pressure because of my personality. Mark had prepared for ministry his whole life, undergraduate studies, internship, volunteering, and four years on the job as an associate pastor. He loved the details, the numbers, the accounting, but he gradually became aware that effective ministry in his setting demanded more relational skills than he was able to give. His family, which was growing, was seeing less of him, and his work was draining. Finally, he realized that he was not designed for full-time ministry. He gave his notice, finished his responsibilities well, 
and began looking for work built around details. And he planned to keep working with small groups of students as a volunteer. Some would look at Mark and say that he had failed or that being in ministry was a mistake. But he is a perfect example of a person who worked well, yet eventually recognized a gap between what the work called for and how he was built. It was a gap he couldn't recognize until he experienced the daily pressure at the boundary between life and who he is. None of us look the same or are gifted the same, nor do we have the same capacities. In the body of Christ, we each have different roles, functions, and approaches to what we are to be doing for God's kingdom. Paul knew that people in the church often wish they had other roles or functions and that people may not even know what their role should be. God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen through 20 There's a reality check moment in life when we realize that no matter how much we try, our personality, strengths, and weaknesses probably aren't going to change in significant ways. Like Mark, if we want to respond appropriately to our pressures, we need to understand our tendencies, preferences, and motivations, for it is in the search of awareness that we can learn about our strengths and weaknesses, our capacities, and our fractures. Certain types of work get your attention and energy easier than others. You may like to lead up front, organize, manage, create, or help, When you're doing your thing, you're in the zone. Some of us love to create new stuff and will do so at the expense of managing things like, well, expenses. Like it or not, few of us get to operate in that sweet spot all week long. Financial reports are a necessary part of our work. Ministry requires tasks outside of our preferences. At these points, young leaders often struggle and pressures expose patterns that we may not have noticed before. Under pressure, whether intense moments or a daily grind, all my protective facades start to fall, and my character, honesty, denial, faithfulness, abandonment, and coping mechanisms, procrastination, self-medication, prayer, are revealed. There are consistent actions you can take to help strengthen your ministry work when you are faced with a high-pressure situation. Number one, own your strengths and weaknesses. There are things you do very well. And others you don't enjoy or do well, but you must do for your work. There's a reason that most interview committees ask about strengths and weaknesses. And there's a reason most novices can't answer the question well. Learning to acknowledge these rather than hide them will assist in your effectiveness as Christ's ambassador. 2. Develop resilience. When we think of an ambassador, we usually think of grace and consistency, a smooth exterior in the face of turmoil an awareness that they represent a nation. The resilient capacity to bounce back, to be flexible, to respond more than react is developed over time. Though it may not seem like it, you're more resilient than you once were. Identify two or three things you can now handle with ease that 10 years ago would have crushed you. Remember how those used to short-circuit your emotions and life? Now think about two or three current things in your life that overwhelm you. In what ways can you begin to develop your capacity and resilience regarding them? In what ways can you be full of grace and consistency despite being pressed, perplexed, and knocked down? Number three, build your strengths, but challenge your weaknesses. Obviously, you possess natural and spiritual gifts that need to be used and strengthened. 
Those God-given talents should not be buried, but neither can you excuse nor hide behind your weaknesses. Writing is not my natural talent, but my ministry positions require it of me. I overcome this weakness by harnessing my love of being creative and by my learning from others. And though I would be too quick to say writing isn't a strength, it's an area where I've seen God's strength and direction. Number four, remember who you follow. If we're not careful, self-focus leads to less about Jesus and God's power and provisions and more about the clay of our lives. When we worry, usually because we desire control, we experience anxious pressure. Our task is to draw closer to Jesus, to nurture our trust in Him, and to see our situations as He does. In the middle of intense pressure, God is often able to do great things for His glory. Pressure with other people. Leadership is always defined in relationship to others, but leaders too rarely see the others as integral in their own assessment. If no one is following, we really aren't leading. And sometimes along the way, we leaders forget that. Leading others creates consistent pressure, though. And the social arena of leadership is an area of inexperience for young leaders. We can't act like what is said is sufficient and the words matter more than relationship. Though that may have once been the case in Western culture, it seems an increasingly dangerous strategy to enact. The new leadership dynamic is much more conscious of fit and team dynamics that require greater interdependence. I tell leaders how you speak and when you speak, communicate as much as what you speak. Be aware. What is social intelligence? Leaders who possess social intelligence exhibit one or more of these traits. Number one, awareness. Patty can recognize the social context of a group she's in. She understands how the power structure works, what's appropriate to the group's dynamics, and the role of the group within the larger community. Number two, empathy. After a few moments with someone, Derek is able to understand the other person's emotional state. He can pick up on nonverbal cues, track what others are feeling or experiencing, and react appropriately. And number three, social negotiation. Kip has the ability to carry on a conversation with others without struggle. He can create smooth and effective interactions with others that benefit all involved in the conversation. Leaders with social intelligence develop relationships because they demonstrate a sense of caring, responsiveness, and a genuine desire to understand before being understood. The quickest way to gauge this is by their listening abilities. Do they talk more than they listen? Leaders who don't have well-developed social intelligence may seem slightly out of touch when it comes to communication and relationships. They are often characterized as cold, aloof, arrogant, or even abrasive. Too often, these leaders are oblivious to how others react or feel about them. They do things that are off-putting and don't even know it. I learned this while at a conference walking around the exhibit hall with my friend Reggie from Alabama. We walked past an exhibit, and the person there saw my name tag and mentioned that they liked a book I had written. I was then a new author and unsure how to respond. Thinking I was being humbled, I mumbled my gratitude, smiled, and comfortably tried to move along. Wait, Reggie said with a southern charm. Are you going to receive the compliment? I must have looked stunned by either the boldness or the idea that one had to receive a compliment. So I stopped and turned back to say thank you and show appreciation for the kind words. Reggie, a careful listener and conversationalist, exemplified social intelligence in conversation. 
This is an area that I've had to develop over the years. I am embarrassed to admit this, but my wife, Kelly, had to teach me words I never used growing up, like congratulations or I'm so very sorry to hear about that. I've learned that and what about you is a great conversation tool to make sure I'm focused on listening to others. Grace is at work here, isn't it? It's a social ability that resonates with God's unmerited favor towards us. No matter what is happening, we can find and express ourselves in ways that imitate God's love, patience, and generous nature to us and others. A colleague of mine was teaching a course in spiritual formation. He started this first class with the usual overview material and watched the graduate students diligently taking notes. He had the class break into smaller groups to answer the question, How do you want to be known in five years? It's a question that draws out insights about the heart of a person. Then each person in the class introduced another student with what they had learned about the person. There were thoughtful and affirming introductions, revealing why people were pursuing spiritual growth and ministry. My friend watched to see that only one student was taking notes about who the other people were in the class. He reminded the class that ministry with others is less about knowing what's on the test and more about knowing the people we are traveling with. Successful leaders are often described as those who really listen, have respect for others, demonstrate concern and compassion, and strive for understanding others' perspectives. They don't take a nonchalant approach to their work. They know that, due to the pull of the world and the flesh, we don't naturally drift toward better behavior without intentional spiritual formation. That drift is especially true in our social interactions. So, for a week, try these actions drawn from what we know of successful leaders. Number one, practice remembering. At a gathering of friends, listen for all the information about the struggles and victories people are in the middle of. Make written or mental notes. And then, a week later, ask a person who won't be creeped out how the situation is going. Number two, practice listening. For 10 minutes, pay particular attention during a conversation with a friend. 30 minutes later, off by yourself, repeat out loud as much of the exchange as you can remember. Try the exercise over several conversations until you are comfortable enough to repeat it to the friend. Number three, practice perspective. Before a meeting with a colleague, review everything you know about the current life situation of the person. Are they facing any struggles with family members? What personal successes have they had in the last month? What time of day is most productive for them? And how does this meeting fit with that productivity? Your goal in this exercise is learning to spend time giving yourself a better understanding of their situation. Self-check. Productivity pressure tests leaders in four skills, vision, communication, systems, and money. Learn these and you'll help your organization and yourself. Number one, managing vision. Good vision is the ability to see ahead and behind while being fully aware of what matters in the present. What are your strengths and challenges as you fashion and share that vision? Would those you lead agree with you? What is their response to the substance of the vision? Number two, managing communication. Sharing the vision frequently is essential in organizational communication. But there is so much noise these days, and unless we're skillful, we create more noise. How do you ensure that your messages in print, social media, and face-to-face have a unified voice? 
What do your people say to each other about your communication practices? Number three, managing systems. Effective ministry requires administration, financial oversight, and clerical tasks. Systems can reduce risk, simplify decision-making, and keep things running well during chaotic times. Further, systems that help you manage your own time and attention are essential. Do you have procedures, checklists, and policies for your team and yourself? Number four, managing money. Money isn't the most important concern in ministry, but any effective senior leader knows that many conflicts happen around money. When planning events, how can you accommodate the people who have little money as well as those who have plenty? What ways do you measure the return on the money people give to your ministries? How do you use those measures in your daily expenditures of ministry money? How we respond to pressures. It is worth our best effort to not settle for second best, to let the pressures of ministry win the day, or to lose focus on what God is calling you to do. The most important ministry work you have is the one right in front of you, wherever you are. You are not on your way to another event. There is no need to wish you had more people to follow your leadership. God has given you this moment, these people, this ministry to work with and invest in for His purposes. He is capable of moving you on or out when it's time. For now, we are called to respond to pressures with wisdom and a resolve like that of the Apostle Paul. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, Paul said to his friends in Philippi. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14. For greater awareness. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest, how high is your stress level most weeks? Right now. What causes the stress in your life most of the time? List as many causes as you can think of. Number two, if people could see your hidden life, what pressures that you feel would they likely be surprised to find? Number three, what scripture passages have helped you when you've experienced stress? Why do those particular verses help you? Number four, which of the three pressure areas, personal, social, and the pressure to produce, is most prominent for you? Number five, list all the ways you respond when under pressure. Ask another person to describe you when you're under pressure. List those answers too. Now look over your two lists and identify any items that aren't healthy. Reflect on why you respond that way.